This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. For our last episode of the season, I am thrilled to bring you an interview with Carlos Moreira. Carlos Moreira is the founder, chairman, and CEO of the international cybersecurity firm WiseKey and the author of the best-selling book, The Transhuman Code, a landmark book about ethics and technology published by Greenleaf Book Group Press in 2019. Before founding WiseKey, Carlos served as the United Nations expert on cybersecurity and trust models. During his 17 years as a UN expert, he became recognized worldwide as an internet pioneer and a distinctive authority, thought leader, and entrepreneurial force in today's digital world, where the acquisition and trusted protection of identity, trust, and security has become an essential step for citizens and entities across the globe. Guided by a belief that the internet needs to be safe and universal and a tool for prosperity, he began developing technologies to protect the internet and founded WiseKey. Carlos is still involved in many nonprofit and philanthropic activities. He is the founder of SG International Organization for Secure Electronic Transactions, a founding member of the Comité de Pilotage Project e-voting of the Geneva government, a member of the UN Global Compact, and a member of the WEF Global Agenda Council, among many other leadership roles. He has received many international awards for his commitment to securing the internet, including his selection as one of the World Economic Forum Trailblazers, Shapers, and Innovators, and his appointment as a member of the Blockchain Advisory Board of the Government of Mexico. He has been considered one of the 300 most influential persons in Switzerland in 2011 and 2013, and he was named one of the top 100 who's who of net economy, given the title Man of the Year by AGEFI in 2007. He has previously served as an adjunct professor at the Graduate School of Engineering, RMIT in Australia, and the head of the Braid Efficiency Lab at the Graduate School of Engineering at RMIT. In The Transhuman Code, he and his co-author David Ferguson ask, are we building a better future for humanity with the help of magnificent technology? Or are we instead building a better future of better technology at the expense of humanity? The book imagines what it would look like to center humanity in the emerging tension between a human-controlled or a machine-controlled world. Hi, Carlos. Hello. So, Carlos, you spent 17 years with the United Nations before founding WiseKey, your current company. What were you doing with the United Nations and what led you from the United Nations to WiseKey? So, yeah, so as you know, um, the United Nations has a headquarters in Geneva, which is the social headquarters, and then they have the United Nations headquarters in New York. So I joined the Geneva headquarters where I live now in Switzerland. And uh, I joined very, very young. And the uh, vision was that at that time coincided with the uh, first generation on the digital transformation. So 
my job as a, as an engineer and, and an expert in computers were to see how developing countries could benefit from the massive amount of information that this organization have. In Geneva, you have WHO for health, ITU, telecommunications, uh, you have World Trade Organization, all this information, they have a lot of data. And our, our view was that the world needs to benefit from that, not only an elite of people that will be located in Geneva. So my, my work was to connect them. I, I went to 185 countries around the world, connecting them. It is even before the web or the internet really started. That was very Genesis type of work. And uh, during that process of connecting, then obviously we identify all the issues that, you know, digital divide, the fact that 80% of the world population does not have, still now, you know, 30 years later, we still don't have that equality that is required for creating a fair society. So that was my job. I was expert on computers. And I was also during that time in the UN, very lucky to coincide to the web. The web was generated in this city, was created, invented in this city by Tim Basley in the CERN. So I worked with that team and I was uh, one of the first uh, pioneers in connecting things to the web through the uh, UN exercise. So that was the, my, my work, 17 years, which inspires me uh, in terms to say, okay, maybe now it's time to do a company and as UN is good for policy and, uh, and regulations, but not necessarily for execution. If you want to execute and you really want to make it really happen, you have to move to the private sector, right? So after serving the UN, I, I just uh, founded Wiseki in, in the year 2000, 1999, actually. So the dot com. And what is WiseKey? What problem did you see? What were you trying to solve? So WiseKey is a, is we started as a crypto company. So we develop cryptography and we develop identity management. So one of the things I realized during my original career in the UN was that if you don't give a digital identity to the people, uh, somebody else has it. So that means that that person will be dependable on that platform, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Amazon or whatever. Those are platforms identity. Our vision was that the individual needs to have its own identity. You need to own your identity and then share your data on your consent because you have the cryptography which allows you to do so. So that was the endeavor of Wisky. We created a cryptographic root key. We created technology that allows people to have their digital identities. With that digital identity, you can shop online, you can pay, you can vote online, you can do all sorts of transactions under your consent. And that identity is yours. And and this obviously has become now a very big issue as at the beginning, it was not obvious that not having ownership of that identity was a problem uh, with what happened with the abuses of, of data and uh, the fact that platforms are selling your identity, they're selling the data that collect from, from you has become quite obvious that consumers and, and citizens of the world need to have their own ownership. And that's what Wiseki does. Obviously the company expanded later in other areas like IoT, like connecting things to the internet, you know, it's one trillion objects to be connected to the internet. So the company now is a listed company on the NASDAQ and become much bigger. But the original vision was that, uh, you know, returning the power to the individual versus the platform. And I guess I have a couple of follow-up questions here. First, can you define what cryptography is for our listeners? And then the second question I have is, why don't we own our digital identities? What is the history behind that? What happened so that we don't have our ownership of our own identities online? So cryptography, to describe it in a very simple way, will be the capability of issuing keys. You know, the key that opens your house is yours, right? And nobody else. And, and that key uh, 
has a way. I mean, you mint that key uh, materially. In, in cryptography, you do the same thing. With, with encryption, with algorithm, you create a key, a cryptographic key, which is your key. And that key is associated with your identity. So you can unlock things on the internet in the same way you open your house. It belongs to you. You don't have to ask anybody to give you the key to open your house. It is owned by you and you only gift under your consent. So if you want your, your, your friends to open your house, you can, you can share that key. But this is yours. The problem on the internet is that identity was not embedded into the infrastructure. The internet originally didn't have an identity play. And obviously companies like social media companies and others realized the opportunity to create a de facto identity which is not yours, is there. So when you connect to Facebook and you create a Facebook wall and you establish a Facebook presence, all the data that you are adding there is creating an identity for you. The digital identity is the data that you provide to Facebook. But that identity belongs to Facebook. So if you want to take it and do it something else with that identity, you need Facebook permission to do that. Now, Facebook will never give you that permission because you are an object, you're a product of Facebook. Facebook makes money with your identity, right? So uh, who says Facebook, say social media companies in general, their business model is to sell the person data, right? And for that, they need to own that identity. So in our model, the identity, it's, it's like your birth certificate is yours. Uh, does not belong to anybody. I mean, you can use it. Some people don't even want to use it. They just issue the digital identity and the store in a safe or even to destroy the digital identity so they are sure that nobody else will, will use it on your behalf. So it is a totally different concept to provide the uh, ownership to the individual. And now with blockchain technology and, and the new peer-to-peer -peer computing, it is much easier in our days to distribute that identity without the need to have a custodian that owns that identity for you. What were the major cybersecurity issues that you saw 20 years ago when you started WiseKey? And how have they changed? What are the major cybersecurity issues that we're facing right now? Yeah, so when, when I started, the internet had only 8 million users. And now we have 2.5 billion users, growing to something like 7 billion users. So, so that means that it's exponentially, the risk has, has, has grown exponentially, right? Because everything is connected to the internet. And we are just at the beginning. Uh, yeah, now, now we are connecting the smart cities, we are connecting cars, we are connecting uh, houses, we are connecting alarm system, electrical grid. So more things are connected, the higher amplification of the risk becomes. And the problem is that the, the fundamental issues on the risk, which is infrastructure and are safe, hackers can access your identity and stolen your identities and then uh, monetize your identities on the dark web. Issues related to accessing infrastructure, hackers can you know, attack a electrical grid and shut the energy of hospitals. So it's becoming more and more serious. And so far, it's more money on the attack than it's money on the defense. The attack is very well organized. The, 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 there's a huge business for hackers to hack. And, and it's amazing how poor consciousness have the organizations that they are not being investing enough money or resources to protect themselves. Maybe there is a wake-up call lately because that is becoming epidemic. I mean, the cybersecurity violations are every day. But in the, in the past, it was not clear. I mean, people did not realize 
size than they have cybersecurity was a risk. Many companies didn't even have cybersecurity expert working for them. You know, you and I share a background in human rights. I was never with the United Nations, so I was never practicing it in, in the formal context that you were. But when I approach questions about ethics and technology, my formative questions are always questions about human rights. And I'm curious, coming out of the United Nations, which has its core, the issue of human rights, how do you understand or see the link between human rights and cybersecurity? So yeah, it's a very good question. Actually, one of the problems we have on, on the uh, Declaration of Human Rights, and you have the United Nations uh, Commission on Human Rights that, that hosts and, and maintains that declaration, is that this is a physical declaration of human rights, that your human rights is a physical person. And they are more or less well-defined, and, and if there is an abuse, you can... Uh, you can, uh, you know, you can bring the, the rule of law and protect those human rights. But you don't have the digital version of those rights. You don't have a digital human rights. And because we are now uh, maybe 50-50 living on the uh, on the metaverse, uh, which is the uh, metaverse is, is the internet, is the digital world, you need those digital rights to be aligned to the uh, human rights. So, uh, for instance, human rights protects your identity, your birth certificate, your passport, your nationality. You don't have the equivalent on the digital rights. I mean, you don't have a way then you can reinforce that protection. So actually in my work in the UN and post the UN, I am very active in organizing webinars and, and through the, my lobby to the back to the UN. What we are trying to convince them that there is a need to insert the digital human rights in the human rights declaration so it becomes global and is uh, enforceable because the, the declaration of human rights signatories are 190 countries but there is no equivalent on the digital rights so how do we protect consumer against the violation of privacy for instance or your data you need some kind of rule of law that will protect consumers in the future and and the best way to do that is that reinforce in the same way that we reinforce human rights in the I mean, at the, at the core of human rights is an ethical principle. Human rights in its current iteration actually comes out of a deep form of philosophical thinking, really started around the you know 18th century and, and moving forward. And I'm curious, do ethics animate the way that you think about human rights in the digital context as well? And if so, what are the ethical principles that you feel ought to be at the center of a digital human rights platform? So first of all is to, I mean, human rights are the rights of humans, right? So you need to define what is a human on the internet. The internet doesn't know you are a human. The internet does not recognize us as a human. For, for us, the internet, the, 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 the nearest connection between us and the internet is, is maybe your mobile phone, but, but then your mobile phone is not you, right? The mobile phone is a tool that you use. So the internet doesn't understand what a human is. So therefore, the AI algorithms and everything that is happening on the internet, because the internet grows exponentially, whether humans grow linearly, right? It takes a long time for us to evolve, whether the internet evolves exponentially. So we have a gap on where humans will be on the internet versus what humans will be really uh, in terms of evolution. So, so, so that gap is the danger, right? Because, the, uh, for instance, if we let that gap to continue, reaching something like the singularity moment, you know, I, I think you're familiar with singularity, the internet will say, we don't need humans anymore. Humans are slow. They are not intelligent enough. They don't have the exponentiality capabilities. So therefore, let's eliminate the humans. The machine will continue themselves by alone. So that's why you need to put the human right principles inside the internet, because the internet should not go against humanity. They should just reinforce humanity. They will should enhance humanity under the control of the human. The human should be the center of excellence, the center of gravity, and not the other way around. 
And this is the big fight now, you know, the fight between people and they're saying, let develop, develop whatever development you want to have on technology that should respect the human uniqueness. Humans need to be embedded into the code. The code needs to understand what a human is. If you don't, the code will evolve in ways that will be discriminatory and, and dangerous for humans. So, so that's the. Uh, but obviously, there's no money yet in doing that. So uh, companies will say, oh, "That's too complicated. Let's just continue developing exponential technologies without thinking about what are the consequences for humans are." But we are in the last generation where we need to make the right decision. Otherwise, we're going to be in trouble. This is a major topic that I want to ask you about in a little bit, but to pull out just one thread from all of the remarkable things you just said here. First, can you define what the singularity is? And the second part of that is, you know, we see, or at least I've seen representations of the singularity in science fiction, for example, futuristic speculative fiction, but you seem really worried about this. What exactly are you worried about? And what do you see right now as the biggest threats to a dis-centered internet that does not consider the human. Yeah, so so we I mean we, we code AI and we code uh, crypto, so we we know exactly what goes inside this this algorithm, right? And and some of them they are not ethical at all. It means that the coder, you know, if you code an AI algorithm and you have no sensibility about humanity, whatever you're going to code there is not going to protect humans. And, and you have to realize that all the algorithms in the world now, they are coded by young kids between 20 and 30 years old, and they are developing code. They're not necessarily conscious at that age, necessary to protect the humanity. I mean, they, they want to just make sophisticated software. Now, the, this code then is run by machines, and they are getting exponentially more and more powerful. So you see the AI gets much better and better, the machine gets more and more powerful, and the internet becomes more and more global. So that interception of exponentiality growth creates a paradigm shift, which is very dangerous. Where there's a moment of singularity. The moment of singularity is the moment that a machine, one machine, one computer with AI and data will have the same IQ and intellectual capability of one human person, right? So that machine will be competing against you in whatever you do, could be in engineering work, could be as a politician taking decisions, could as, a, as any person will have a challenge in one machine, and that machine will be as equal or more intelligent than that person. That's the moment of singularity. Everything starts there. And the projection is 2030, 2035, where machines will, will get to that power. Five years later from that moment, one machine will be able and more intelligent than the combined intelligence of all human beings combined, one machine. The thinking there is that if we don't make sure that those machines are going to protect humans and they're going to say, okay, okay, you can do whatever you want, but it has to be for the benefit of humans, then we're going to be a liability because the machine will try to optimize processes. For instance, we breed. Breeding is it's polluting the, uh, the the planet, right? Because we have 6 billion people sending CO2 on a regular basis. Maybe the machine said, okay, this is a liability for the planet. Human brain beings are, are breeding. Breeding is not good for the planet. Therefore, we should not have them. This is the kind of conclusions AI will take on optimizing if we don't put something in the code and say, hey, you can do whatever you want, but you have to respect humans. Humans are to be here, and they are the one that needs to be in control of the technology and not the other way around. Otherwise, technology becomes like fire. I mean, fire can warm your house, but it can burn your house as well, depending how you master the power of fire, right? Technology is the same thing. And, 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 and that power should be in the hands of humans and not in the hands of algorithms. 
You know, it's interesting. I can hear as you're talking the importance of ethics and design for you and at the core of thinking about how we design. I'm noticing on, on WiseKey's website, you have a code of ethics. It's very prominently listed on the site. What led you to want to write a code of ethics for the company? Because we are developers, right? So a developer needs to start somewhere. I mean, when you develop a code or a crypto or AI algorithm, you have to fundament yourself. It's like a writer. Before writing a book, you have to inspire yourself from something. And then you develop. The code of ethics for us was a way to, to check what is human ethical, as basic as that. I mean, and we went to see everything. Philosophers, university. I went to the Vatican. I went to talking to Asian cultures. Uh, we talking to religion leaders. We invite them to Davos. And we're trying to gather what is a human person is, why we are different from a machine. Uh, is our consciousness is different from that machine? How do did we protect humanity for two hundred thousand years, which is how, how long have we have been here? What was what was the, uh, the the good things we did in order not to destroy humanity through through all the uh, problems that humans can also generate, like wars? So we strip the good things. And, and those good things become the kind of basic code of ethics. And, and that code of ethics, it, it's just a way to say, okay, let's start somewhere because whatever algorithm we will do, whatever super intelligent machine we will build in the future, it should also have the code of ethics embedded. So by embedding the code of ethics is the only way we are sure that that machine or that algorithm will not be, be detrimental to us because the code of ethics is, is what is going to stop them to do so, right? So, so that's why the book, The Transhuman Code, the code is that, the code of ethic on that transhuman evolution where we are moving from human to transhuman, we are enhancing ourselves. But at the same time, we need to keep ethical. Do you think that having a clear code of ethics and a clearly articulated, and this is a second page that you have, set of principles, which you also post on your website, changes the kinds of technologies you create, the kinds of people who want to come work for you, the way that the culture of production runs? And if so, how? Because there are very, very basic things that we do uh, in our lives that we don't do on the internet. For instance, the concept of uh, the, the ethical concept of consent. If, if you invite me for dinner in your house, that day you are giving me a consent to go to your house for dinner, right? It doesn't mean that I can go to dinner every time I want. Uh, this is only limited to one day that you invite me to dinner. On the internet, you don't have that. When you give consent to Facebook to use your data, they can use any way they want, as much as they want, and every day if they wish. So you cannot retrieve the consent back. You cannot say, no, sorry, now you're not authorized to do that anymore. So humans have lost the power of consent on the internet. We don't have that consent. And because we don't have that consent, we can be easily manipulated. Because we are always in a situation of, oh, you are abusing about my data, or you are collecting illegally my data, or I realize that you are selling my data to advertisers. I didn't authorize you to do so. And, and you can complain as much as you want, and they're going to say, yeah, 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 but they don't care because they have already your consent. Your, your consent is being given. So retrieving the consent back is unethical. Every human should have back again its consent on the data and the identity they share. And by giving that consent back, then you have the liberty as a human to define how you're going to give that consent. Maybe you are a classical person that for you consent is very important, or maybe you are a person that you don't care, you share. I mean, but that's, that's his individual choice, right? And, and you empower the person back again to control those ethical parts. The computers are not ethical. Computers don't understand what ethic is. A computer doesn't, artificial intelligence 
is bias. Artificial intelligence, I'm sure you have followed the evolution of the cryptos. Sometimes it's basically an expansion of what the coder has put. For instance, there have been cases where cars were not recognizing color people. And why? Because in the code uh, of the uh, developer, they didn't define that the car should stop in front of a color person. It was only designed for white Caucasians. So when the car was driving, it stopped with Caucasian, but it will basically accelerate or even kill a person of color. So you see, the, the code is what drives the algorithm. If you don't put ethics in the algorithm, then obviously that algorithm can, can take very, very detrimental things against us humans. The problem is that this is cost. I mean, this is complex for organization. If you go back to uh, social media companies and you say, hey, you have to build your code of ethic, the engineers all say, oh, this is so complicated. I, I need the freedom to develop whatever product I want. I don't want any obstacles. So that's why we are entering into very dangerous utopia here. I want to ask you about the needs for creating an ethical kind of code a bit later, and perhaps the need for greater diversity in the production line of coding, such as intellectual diversity, cultural diversity, in a second. But but I want to get to your book, The Transhuman Code, which is a book that you've just written and published. I think this is a really exciting book. Can you tell us what the transhuman code is? So as, as we described before, computers are exponentially, so we are becoming transhuman. Transhuman means that we're going to be enhanced. We're going to be, uh, you know, accelerated or, 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 or organs are going to be replaced uh, or implants are going to be uh, uh, spitting or, or, or thinking capacity. So, so that is an unstoppable process. I mean, China is, is taking the lead, but you have now Musk and others that they're coming and implanting things in your brain so you can, you can articulate yourself in a, in a better way or you can improve your mental capabilities, which is okay provided that is done again ethically, right? Because then we, we, we are going to create humans and there are no humans because our body, as I mentioned before, is not exponential. Our body, to the contrary, we, we get older and, and we lose capabilities as, as we age. And this is something that computers don't like. Computers is the other way around. They just get better and better as, as, as the evolution continues. So the transhuman part is going to continue. But as I mentioned before, you need a code of ethics in that transhuman process. And that's what the transhuman code is all about, is to say, why we don't want to stop the growth of technology? Because technology have done amazing things and they are very good things that technology can achieve. We should embed the code, the, the coding of those ethical human related aspect into, into that whatever code is going to be. So later the book deals, if, if we develop a transhuman code for health, how, how that will look like in the current epidemic situation. There's tons of abuse. You know, one of the things we do is dealing with governments on COVID and certification and vaccines and all that. And it is amazing the abuses that they are happening worldwide to the point that in 10 years time, we might forget about COVID, but we will not forget that, that it was actually in 2019 that they will enter into a total uh, control of information in an unprecedented way that will not be possible if COVID was not there. So COVID is going to actually create a culture which is a very dangerous culture. So that's what Transhuman Code does. It says if, if we put ethics in the transhuman evolution, how each industry will benefit from it. Health will be, again, more human health. We don't need necessarily to live eternally as a son. People want us to live. You know, there's a very big industry emerging that makes human eternal. 
Uh, that means that it, what is eternal? I mean, you're going to be replaced. Everything. The only thing will be transfer your 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 mind to a computer, and, and that computer will eternally be you. But is that you? So so um, we need to put some brakes on that. I mean, uh, I think you need a brake, but you need an accelerator. You cannot only accelerate. You need also a brake. And the brake is the ethics. The acceleration is the transhumanism. And and you have to you have to drive that way. Otherwise, if it's only ethical. It's not point either because it become philosophical and then the society doesn't improve, right? But it has to be both. It has to be ethics as a philosophy, as, as, as maintaining the human values, and at the same time, exponential technology to improve on those values. And, and what is, will happen is that, and that's why wise key is wise, it's wisdom, right? I mean, one of the consequences of ethical people is that they are wise, they have a wisdom. And when you have a wisdom, you take normally good decisions. And good decision, if you take good decisions one after the other, you normally reach success because success is just the capability of deciding things in the right way many, many times, right? So that's, that's the concept of transhuman code. I heard you speaking about the book and you said that we need to start thinking about the urgency of putting human values back into tech the same way that we think about the urgency of climate change, which more and more of us are thinking about as a impending disaster of extremely urgent portions. Um, and what you said was that actually we have less time to figure out the ethics and the human context for technological production than we have to figure out this other urgent crisis, which is climate change. What did you mean by that? What did you mean by the idea that we have less time than this other crisis to figure it out? What are the urgent questions we need to answer? Because if, if humans, uh, uh, as I say, you know, 2030 is the singularity year. This is uh, this is very next uh, next corner, right? I mean, we are nearly there. The uh, you saw the in the last in the last year the valuation of these companies, and they are very you know predatory in terms of collecting data from people. All of them they are reaching one trillion dollar plus. So 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 this is creating a kind of no point or return. How are you going to undo that? I mean, it, it will take a massive amount of energy to stop that exponentiality to continue to extremes that even you saw what happened in the U.S. Congress when they're trying to regulate Facebook. I mean, it was like a very, very unsuccessful discussion, right? Because in one side you have a technology and the other side you have a politician and they don't connect. They don't, they don't speak the same language. And the problem is that exponentiality doesn't care about humans. So if it doesn't care about humans, exponentiality will not care neither about climate change because the only person that suffers from climate change is humans. It's not the technology, right? If we are entering into a world world that is five degrees more, as is happening now here in Europe, you know, we are getting record uh, temperatures in Rome. Who cares? The computers are all in air condition and they're working very well. It's actually humans. Humans are displaced. Humans are losing their houses. Humans are losing their jobs. Humans are using their countries in some cases. And computers are just analyzing that data and say, oh, that's bad for that. Yeah, okay. That's maybe another reason why we need to replace them, you know, because we, we have to worry about one thing more, which is maintaining the earth livable for humans, right? Uh, uh, technology doesn't care about humans. So it, that's why you have older thinkers and they are saying, oh, let's maybe just go to Mars and then we create another society in Mars with enhanced people and forget about the Earth. The Earth is not anymore a problem, right? We put all these billionaires to create societies in Mars. So we are reaching that point now. That's what I say. First, we, we need to bring ethics back to, to, to the discussion. And if you bring ethics to the discussion and then everybody realizes and awakes that humans are what needs to be protected, then the planet that we are living needs to be friendly to humans. 
that technology need, needs to serve human and not the other way around, then we can take the right decisions to prevail, right? Otherwise, uh, we will disappear. I mean, we become the liability, right? We become like an endangered species, like the uh, elephants in Africa. Everybody say, oh, so pity, you know, elephants in Africa are disappearing. But what do we do to avoid it, right? We still, that happens, that happens again and again. So we are at that point now where our society needs to awake a new consciousness about bringing the ethic into the international discussions. You know, I hear you say over and over again, we need to bring ethics into these technological discussions. And a description of the book says that we need to ensure that we're building a better future for humanity with the help of magnificent technology and not instead building a better future of technology at the expense of humanity. And I'm curious, how did we get to a place in the first place where we're building a better future of a better technology at the expense of the human. How did we get there? Because the business model that has prevailed was the business model of converting the human as a product. We are a product. The internet sees us as a product. I mean, a very successful company in our days is how many consumers they have. But consumers are not people, are consumer, right? The concept of a consumer limits the human nature to just consuming, buying something from somebody else. And we are, we built a society of consumers and they are buying products and, and we are getting all kinds of incentivations to stay as a consumer detrimental to our humanity. I mean, when, when Netflix launched 20 uh, series, they don't care if we are maybe destroying our social life and we are not going out to see our friends anymore. For them, they just want you to be happy as a consumer. And maybe you are excited as a consumer and you have a great consumer experience, but then you have a very poor human life, right? So nobody is maximizing the humanity in humans. And why? Because there is no money for it. The industry has put all the money, all the revenue. The, the stock market realizes uh, how much money you make on your consumers. There, there is no uh, value or measure then we'll value a company for the goodness that you do. That could be a measure, right? When you audit a company every month or every quarter, you say, well, how much money you made or great. Uh, how many consumers you, you had, great. 25% uh, growth, super. But what has you done to maintain humanity in this planet? What is your social responsibility? How have you fight a, a climate change? What, this is only happening now in a very timid way, you know, where... Some people are now daring to say a company in the future value should not be by the money they make, but by the good they made to the society. That's how you measure success in the future, right? But we lost it because we were greedy and we just wanted to make money and fast. And for that, we make humans as a consumer, as a product. Do you think that there's change that you see in valuations or even investors who are interested in social good as a kind of demonstration of value? Or do you think that we're still in an economy where the basic value of a company is how much growth or how much revenue it can pull in? I mean, it's a lot of talk, but it, the only way you, you can say, yes, something is happening when you will see $1 trillion company that is selling ethical products, you know, then, then we can say, okay, that's that's a already the case right but we, we are not everywhere i mean america we have here in switzerland you know we have a huge massive company like nestle food but are they solving the human distribution of food in a egalitarian way no they are just concentrated in, in selling products some of those products by the way even themselves recognize that they are dangerous for human because they have too much sugar and things like that so we don't have yet those multinational of the goodness 
that needs to happen. And, and, and that's because the stock market doesn't reward them. The analyst doesn't know how to uh, price them or evaluating them. And that needs to happen as soon as possible and fast is that you should start to make money. I mean, once we, we know how to make money by being ethical, then we're going to solve the problem. But you need to have that kind of reward in order to happen. If you know, it becomes witchable thinking only. Are there technologies or are there specific companies that are truly human-centered that have this kind of value proposition where the, where the social good is making money for them? And if so, what are they? So they are, but they're not big enough. I mean, Whiskey is one of them, but we're not a trillion dollar company. And there are many like us, and they are trying to break through that new model where you will not only take care about you know, your, your financial performance, but also concrete actions in order to solve this big problem. So they are, they are very small company. But now the good thing and the hope comes from the technology, because in the last five years, six years, there have been two movements of decentralization of power on technology. One is blockchain, uh, which is basically taking the power from the uh, very big uh, centralizers of technology, you know, like those Amazons of the world, and they are growing huge because basically they monopolize one sector and they use huge data centers, huge clouds, huge things that's basically to control their their, their dominant position. Now, uh, blockchain, you don't need that anymore. You can decentralize. Every computer on Earth is connected. So the combined power and the peer-to-peer power is equal or higher than those mega a centralizer company. So the technology is actually giving us hope on this decentralization model. And the second one is the cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies empowers people in a totally different way than, than the uh, traditional money, right? Because if, if you are valuing your company in currency, in fiat, you have to go through the process of raising money, getting your VCs. And obviously, by the time you get into the stock market, even if you had at the beginning, hopes to solve some of the major human problems. By the time you get into the market, you are totally formatted and structured because you obviously need to satisfy your shareholders' needs. So we, we, cryptocurrency gives you a freedom for that because uh, you can you can basically replace the, the financial system. You can shortcut that process and go directly to people and they have crypto wallets and they will be financing with cryptocurrencies innovation and they are not necessarily innovation and they are recognized as mainstream innovation. So we have a process of decentralization, which I think is very interesting happening now. And if that movement continues, and I hope they do, then we will start to see uh, companies that they are very successful without the need to go against those human uh, ethical principles. If I understand correctly, the Transhuman Code is actually more than a book. It's an interactive knowledge platform. How does that work? So we, you know, we we were members of the World Economic Forum in Davos. So we we were. I'm going to Davos for nearly uh, 20 years, and it's a lot of talk in Davos. You know, every year everybody talks about a lot of things, but then things that does not necessarily continue, right, in action. So we started to organize seminars physically in Davos with people and CEOs and others. And, and we were describing technology with the same view, right, protecting humans, protecting identity, protecting data, cybersecurity. And then when I realized that there was a very big uh, appetite uh, from elites of the world to, just to learn, you know, some of them they don't even know. I mean, they are. it's not that they are bad people and they are doing that in purpose to destroy humanity, but but they never asked themselves the question whether their companies were friendly to humans. So by, by educating them and opening the dialogue, we started to realize that, that this was actually a, a 
very powerful and constructive dialogue. And then we wrote the book just, I mean, I'm not a, an author, I, I'm not writing books. I wrote the book as a, as a way of, of pr- pr- providing a manifest uh, which compiled the ideas of, of many people. We, we interviewed uh, Sean Petland from MIT, which is one of the uh, world famous experts on data privacy. Uh, we interviewed CEOs, politicians, and, and basically, we, we, we reached the conclusion that this book is only the beginning. Then we organized actually a transhuman code uh, event in the Vatican. The Vatican wanted to uh, discuss AI, you know, and they invited Microsoft, they invited uh, all companies in the world to just have a dialogue about those AI. AI in non-human way can be very dangerous. And we, we organized with them a meeting there. We organized follow-up meetings around the world. We went to China to talk to the Chinese government about identity and protecting data of their own citizens. We are in Geneva, very active in the United Nations. So we do a lot of events and conferences. So always with the objective to, sense, to, to just basically create the right environment and mindset for people to do it. I have the hope, and I think makes sense, that if you are human, you will work to prevail, right? You're not going to do something which is detrimental to your race because we all have kids or brothers and sisters. I mean, we are not alone in this world, right? If, if you have the consciousness that what you're doing is not good for humanity, you will take the right decisions if you are a decision-making process uh, person and you know and you have the power to make that decision. But we need to educate there. And that was the idea of the, of the book and the idea of the platform. The platform is interactive, allows people to exchange ideas, uh, and we are now expanding that through the blockchain because more people are getting involved um, into, into this exercise. I wanted to pull out a, an idea that you talked about that I think is incredibly important because I saw that the book, as you described, is a really collaborative process with experts ranging in their backgrounds, approaches, and context. And I'm interested in thinking about the importance of diversity, cultural, geographical, experiential, intellectual. We touched on that earlier. What's your take? Why is that so important? Why was it important for you in writing The Transhuman Code? I mean, diversity is what we are. I mean, you know, uh, I just read a statistic this morning that, that in the United States, the uh, diversity is now even larger than, than the original white uh, population, right? So we are, in Europe, we have the same phenomenon. The problem we are facing is that our colonial society worldwide, you know, has built a model for the rest of the world. But this model was architected with less than 10 million people decided how the uh, 6 billion people of the world should live, right? And this is the current society. I mean, English, Portuguese, Spanish, Americans later, the colonial countries always impose their thinking and, and their rights obey. And if you don't obey, you pay the consequences. And this is pity because combined wisdom and knowledge that, that humans can create together if you bring them together is an amazing. I mean, imagine that you design a world where everybody, not only an elite, but everybody has a say and, and can bring their experience, their their nationalities, their language, their culture, their religion, everything as a, as a way to contribute to, to the design of the, of the perfect society, right? That, that's the, the, the need of diversity. But diversity doesn't have a voice yet. Diversity, it's, it's filtered and you have still something like two-thirds of the humanity that doesn't have a voice uh, in the world they live. You know, and that's why they pay the consequence. I mean, I travel all over the world with the UN. I went to Africa uh, every every month. And, and you see how people are disconnected and how rich they are and how many lessons they could teach us, but, but they don't have a voice, right? And there's where technology can be instrumental. For instance, if you go now to India or you go now to uh, Africa, everybody has a mobile phone, right? Even the small kids. 
So, so, and they are actually doing things that we even developed countries we don't do, like payments. You know, the, you go in Africa with M-Pesa, they are doing all transactions by mobile phone, which are very low generation mobile phones. One of those that we we, we put in our in our in the, in the back of your house, and uh, and they are very efficient doing that. So, with little help, we can get their voice in designing the best society. And I think this is the combined wisdom of of the multidisciplinary and multi-ethical ethnical uh, communities is what will give us directions for the future. Uh, we cannot just let the elites design in the world for the future. It will not make any sense and will be dangerous. Circling back to an earlier point in this conversation where I quoted you as saying that returning technological production and ideation back to a point where it serves human values is urgent, if not more so than addressing climate change. I want I want to ask, many climate scientists are not optimistic about averting some of the worst consequences of climate change in time to stop some of the incoming catastrophes that are headed our way. Are you optimistic that we will be able to to avert the consequences of technological designs and productions that have not attended to human-centered values? You stay up at night thinking about this? So as, as, as we are witness in, in, uh, in countries that are near the equator, right, they're suffering and they're going to continue suffering because the fires are going to happen and there are more violence uh, every year. So, so the, the, the consequence of that is that displacement. I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about the human survival because not the entire world will suffer. I mean, in Switzerland, you don't have the same phenomenon that you will have in Greece, for instance, right? What, what will happen is that because you're losing everything, because, you know, you lost your house, you lost your work, you lost your, your your agricultural land, you will need to migrate. So so we are entering into a world where you're going to have massive migration from countries that they become very hostile to countries that they have a better life conditions and the temperature. And while some countries are getting to the stream of what is livable, others actually are, are becoming more more open, more hospitable. You know, you have Siberia, for instance. You know, Siberia was impossible to to stay there, it was too cold, and now suddenly you, you can start to stay in Siberia. Siberia is, is 10 times bigger than the United States, right? So, so there's going to be displacement of people. And the problem we are facing is that we don't have any legislation that has been designed for that. What do you do with them? If you have 5 million Mexicans coming to the United States or, or, or 20 million Tunisians coming to Spain, what do you do with it? I mean, we don't have any legislation that has been designed for that. And obviously, the worst thing you can do is to put these people in camps and, and treat them like, uh, like uh, subhumans, right? So we will need to evolve or, or legislation or sharing spirit will need to improve because we will need to accommodate people that they are coming from distressed areas. And this is going to be a phenomenon. We're going to have to live with that. And we're going to have to teach our kids to be generous uh, with that, right? Because otherwise there's going to be wars. I mean, people are not going to, if you lose everything, and you have a family, you, you're gonna you're gonna do whatever you need to do in order to survive, right? So better better doing an organized way than doing it in a way where we're gonna have conflicts and wars and terrorists and things like that, right? So we need to bring the legislation of the world, and again, the human rights is very important for that because if all legislations of the world will be based on human rights, 
we will be treating people in a very fair way, right? Which is not the case now. So society will need to be less selfish and we will need to accommodate what is coming. I mean, something like maybe 1 billion people are going to be displaced over the next, uh, you know, 30 years. And this is going to be a reality because their countries are not going to be livable anymore. And climate scientists are pretty not optimistic about our ability to do that. What about in the technological dimension? Are you optimistic that we will reinvest our technologies with ethically centered human rights values so that we stop some of the worst uh, consequences of our technologies? Providing that it's not too late. I mean, we should have started already uh, two decades ago, right? I mean, we are waiting too long. I mean, technologies are there as, as, as we are helping some companies to create a CO2 crypto currencies that allows to upset the, um, the footprint, your carbon footprint when you're traveling on a plane and things like that. And that money then is invested into technology that can absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. So th- th- there is a way of doing it. But our, for the same reason I mentioned before about companies just focusing on making money where it's easy to make money, why they will complex, complicate their lives to go to complex situation, right? I don't know. Humans are, are pretty good to do things when we have no other uh, alternative. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure maybe we are waiting for that. The answer is in the new generation that they are coming. They are more conscious. My kids are much more conscious than I were and, and, and my generation were in terms of climate change and they are taking the right decisions. Now, whether it's too late or not, we don't know. In any case, it's going to be a disruption and, and technology can help and humanity needs to evolve in order to use this technology in a wise way. So here's a question that I have coming from the context where I teach ethics and technology. I don't want to fall in the trap of being the philosopher who sits and talks and talks and talks about things without giving any practical application. Because as you said, if we sit and talk about things, then nothing ever gets done. But we still want, of course, be thoughtful and perhaps slow in our design. So here's a question that I sometimes get asked. I give a presentation on ethics and technology to a group of CEOs or a group of people who are working on building a company. And they say, well, this is really important ethical information, but what can we do if we want to build an ethical technology company centered on human values? What advice would you give to a company CEO working to build a human-centered set of technological products or a company that's based in human values? What do they need to know, understand, or be aware of if they're going to ensure that their company will build an ethical and human-centered product. The first thing you need to be convinced yourself that this is this is what it is, right? I mean, this is not something that you're going to do because you want to be creating a company and therefore it's a good pitch to have in order to create a company. I mean, you, you have to own that yourself in, in your soul. I mean, you, you have to be a missionary in terms of say, okay, I want to bring ethics to the world. And, and I want to bring ethics to the technology because for me, it's very important. So the education of that kid or that person, it is important. If that person already recognizes the need of ethics in their lives, it is much easier for them to create a company or a movement uh, or even a foundation doesn't need to be a company that will defend those principles. But you need to own that. And that's where teaching education is a very important thing because I do teaching a lot here in universities as well. And, and we always... Try, I always say, right, if, if I don't this, uh, speak, speech with the students, one of you guys will create one company and uh, on the basis that we have discussed, then I will be a very happy person, right? Because that will have contributed to something. So first, you need to have that. The second thing is that it is always an entrepreneur activity. I mean, if you have the spirit of an entrepreneur, which is never give up and, and defend your ideas, whatever that takes, you will progress. You know, when I left the UN, I was a bit of kind of, okay, this is great people talking, but they only talk. I mean, they don't 
don't they don't do anything, right? They talk, they talk, they go to meetings. They actually, by going to meetings, they aggravate the problem because the trouble. So how we stop that? And and they, there's where I say I, I will create a company. I will create when I created my company. I have no idea whatsoever that I'm gonna go one day in the Nasdaq, right? For me, the Nasdaq was like going to the moon, you know. But I, I defended my principles, and then I brought technology into that space. So when you have an ethical background, the good thing is then you can use technology to make it very performing, very factual, very uh, execute that strategy with a mission statement in a way that then you can convince a lot of people to follow you and then one bring the others, right? So having a strong ethical background, principles, uh, trying to solve one problem, not 100 problems because you cannot solve 100 problems, trying to solve one, you know, one concrete. There are so many problems to solve in the, in the current society. Take one, climate change, privacy, consent, identity, displacement. I mean, there are so many things that you can do it. And then put yourself in a position of an entrepreneur, which is based, entrepreneur is a person that solves problems, right? That's what an entrepreneur is. And every single problem that everybody sees a huge problem, an entrepreneur says, no, no, that's not a, let's break in pieces and let's solve each of those pieces. And by, by doing that, you solve the problem, right? So this is, this is the, this is the evolution. Change the narrative. You know, I had a, the other day, uh, I had a Zoom with a very large foundation helping refugees worldwide. You know, they have 5 million refugees in camp. And we were talking how, how we take them out of the refugee camps, you know, because this is getting a big problem. Uh, and they asked me the question, how technology can help them? I said, the first thing you have to do is don't call them refugees anymore. Because by calling them refugees, you're putting a label on a person. So just give them a give them a laptop, a good connection, a good internet connection, and let them develop code. Give them some training in the camp on coding, teach them how to code. And, and you know what is going to happen is enterprises are going to recruit that person directly from the camp because the demand is there. I recruit people all over the world. I Do I care if that person is in a camp or is in a hotel lobby in Delhi? I don't care. I want just the skills of that person, right? But if I know this is a refugee and I know this is in a camp and I know that, that creates this kind of, ooh, will, will I do that? So we need to change the narrative. I mean, if you want to empower people, unleash the potential of people, you have to call them only human. There is a human person, regardless of what it is, that wants to enter into the global economy and has a talent and wants to make that talent available to any person on earth and they would like to buy that talent. That's the new solution. But obviously, the industry doesn't like that because the industry of refugee camps is very big, right? The people that build the camps, the people that they build the security of the camp, all these people make a lot of money. And for them, one of the things they don't like is people leaving the camps and getting in, injected into the global economy. So that's the problem we are facing. That's the problem. The money is not in the solution. It's just into creating the problem. And that needs to change. I heard you say that you teach, and that's one, one of the things that you find incredible value in, inspiring somebody in a class somewhere or somebody in an audience somewhere to become the next entrepreneur to solve a problem. What advice, wisdom, or insight would you want to share with the next generation of humanists and technologists as they go forward in their careers to use or to build the future of technology? So yeah, what I always say to to young engineers, I am my audience is more technology people, is that if they identify one problem and and they really have the willingness to to put a lot of effort to solve that problem, 
the good news is that now it's easier to solve that problem than it was in my generation. You know, but to just create a company in my generation, you need hundreds of millions of dollars raising money because you have to do everything. You have to build your own data center, your own cloud, your own everything. Whether in our days, uh, with a fraction of that, you can create a company. You don't need to have a staff. You can just recruit them anywhere in the world. You can use uh, centralized data centers. You don't have to build one. You have uh, cloud available. You have software, open source software available that you can develop. So you can drag uh, amazing power force available in the current technology uh, revolution to the service of the problem that you want to solve. And, and that's, is, uh, that's, that's very encouraging, right? Because that means that rather of leaving the university and going to work uh, for ABC company because they're going to give you a big salary, just create your company, create the environment where you're going to be able to, to fulfill your mission, right? And, and things are getting better and better. And I think a, a big opportunity and a big opportunity also in terms of economic opportunity is emerging of people coming with concrete solution on climate change, on diversity, on human inclusion, and, and all the uh, problems that society is having today. You know, the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, you know them. They are very clear where are the areas we should be acting, right? The Sustainable Development Goals have been there for nearly now 15 years and, and they are still not fulfilled. So that gives an orientation for young entrepreneurs to say, okay, I, I'm going to have, uh, let's have a look into what are the Sustainable Development Goals to create a sustainable society. Let's, let's choose one and let's create a company around that need. Let's develop technologies and satisfy that need. So uh, huge opportunities uh, ahead. Thank you so much, Carlos. Pleasure. And that's it for this season of Technically Human. We're taking a few weeks to regroup. Please join us when we return back in September for another season of the show.